Hi friends, welcome along to another episode of Soundtracking, my podcast where I get to dive into the world of film, TV and music. Uh, and for the last month, for the whole of November, we've been gifting you two episodes a week. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, we'd love to hear which episodes you've been particularly enjoying. Um, and the thing is, is I, I love listening to them as well. I know it might sound a bit odd, but it's a very different experience. I've said this before, from doing the interview, being in it, to then listening to it once Ben, the wonderful Ben that I work with, thanks Ben, as always, uh, does his great work on it and adds all the little bits of music and edits it. And so thank you eternally, Ben, for all your amazing work on the show. And it's just really lovely to hear it brought to life. Um, so I listened to the Jared Leto interview and I was quite hard on myself after the interview because I was a bit annoyed by how little I felt I'd got out of him. I only had 15 minutes with him, which is not a long not that long to be able to get into a, a really in-depth conversation, particularly with someone like Jared, who hates talking about process, uh, doesn't watch his films. So it can be quite a tricky conversation. But I thoroughly enjoyed listening back to it. And actually, he did make some quite interesting, revelatory uh, comments about various things. So, um, yeah, thank you, Ben, for all your amazing work. And I've really enjoyed listening to that episode. Um, and I hope that some of you have too. It's had a really nice response, actually, the Jared uh, episode. So thank you very much for getting in touch. We love hearing from you, whether that be on social media or on the website. There's a, a way of contacting us via email. So, yeah, get in touch if you fancy doing it. But our latest guest on Soundtracking is another giant of film music composition who I was lucky enough to catch up with at Abbey Road Studios as he was recording his work on the latest Fantastic Beasts movie. I need to say a massive thank you actually to the entire team at Abbey Road Studios and also Murray Chalmers PR for helping organise this because Abbey Road is kicking off a year of 90th celebrations uh, this month, in fact, November, 90 years on from its opening ceremony in 1931 by Sir Edward Elgar. And uh, the studios have been celebrating that with all manner of activities. And it was really lovely that they asked me to come and host the podcast there as part of their celebration. So my huge, huge thanks to uh, everybody at Abbey Road for making me feel very welcome and organising it. Anyway, back to our composer, Mr. James Newton Howard, who has scored well over 100 films across all genres, including The Fugitive, Pretty Woman, Sixth Sense, Fantastic Beasts, Where to Find Them, My Best Friend's Wedding, and a couple of Nolan's Batmans, just for good measure. So where do you begin? I mean, where do you begin? Well, we're going to start with a cue from one of his most recent projects, Disney's wonderful Rhea and the Last Dragon. We're in Abbey Road, James. This is a... I still feel like a child every time I come here. 
Well, so do I. It's it's kind of the temple of you know where it, where it all began for me in terms of popular music. That's for sure. I mean, I started off as a classical musician, but you know, the Beatles. Uh, there'll never be another Beatles, and that they really defined this place in so many ways. Yeah, and it's completely amazingly inspirational just to walk in here every day. Let alone have the penthouse, which is, you know, they've just taken over the penthouse at Abbey Road. So, you know, it's uh, wonderful. I have no no excuses, really. Can you remember the first time you came here? Yeah. First time I came here was I was um, in Elton John's band in 1976, back in the Stone Age, I guess. And I had just joined the band in 1975, which is a whole other tale in itself. But um, my big goal when I first joined the band was to do what Paul Buckmaster had done, which is write strings for Elton John. I mean, I just had this fantasy about doing it. So we had done a movie called, uh, a boom movie, an album called Blue Moves, mm -hmm. which was a double album. And there was this big solo piece called Tonight that Elton was doing. And I asked if I could do the orchestration on it. And he said, well, have you ever done it? And I said, no. And he said, Okay, so um, which I will always be forever indebted to him. And we came over here in 1976 with the LSO, and I conducted with my hair all over the place and my face buried in the score. And I, I can't even imagine what my beat must have looked like to the orchestra. But we got through it. So Abbey Road's in my heart ever since. original inspiration for what you wrote then for that in terms of you know he asked you if you'd ever done it before you said no but you found something you found a way of creating something what, what do you think took you on that journey to to create i you know i've i it's interesting you ask that because it's only lately you know i just turned 70 recently which is a really shocking thing but it's just earth years yeah no it's fine i mean <laughs> i feel great but um I wondered what, why was it that I wanted to do that? But I remember when his, that album came out, the Black Album with, you know, Take Me to the Pilot and Your Song and all those incredible songs. The thing that just blew me away. And I, as I say, I was a piano performance major at USC. I was a classical pianist, was the orchestral stuff. I thought, wow, I hadn't heard anybody do that with just piano, virtuosic kind of rock and roll playing, amazing voice in these string arrangements. You know, I, I think this is true. I think I had a dream that I was going to be in Elton John's band. It gets a little bit cosmic, uh, and I, I won't go there. But um, so the first thing I wanted to do was, you know, play synthesizers, but more than anything, work with the orchestra. So he gave me that chance. What was that? Can you remember what it was like kind of hearing back what you'd created for the first time in this room and, and also the fact that it was here? Well, it, the orchestra and the recordings sounded amazing. I was... Uh, slightly unimpressed with my own performance that I had not synchronized myself better because I was a terrible conductor. I'm still not a very good conductor. It's why I don't really like to conduct because you're having to sort of engage with musicians in a different way and almost a dictatorial way. You know, they say an orchestra is like a horse. And when you get on the back of a horse, it knows immediately whether you know what you're doing or not. 
and the orchestra <laughs> is the same way. Um, so, but no, they were very kind, but I, you know, it was, it was what we call rubato, which means it didn't have a click. It wasn't a steady tempo. It was, it sort of got slow and then it went fast. It was just Elton by himself. So I had to try and follow it. And I think I did an okay job, but everybody was very happy and I was a little bit less, but I guess that one aspires to being better. Well, it's the way you learn, isn't it? That's the way you, you learn. Kind of, you do buy, it again. Buy, yeah, exactly. Hopefully do a better job. idea that we could kind of talk in, in any great depth about your career in the short space of time that you have today would be impossible because it's jaw-droppingly wonderful when you think about all the the work that you've done on music and film um, and even you know just talking briefly there about your, your work with Elton and that whole part of your life it would be great to kind of get the chance to talk about that in depth but moving on to that point where you did start writing for film how did that happen mm. How did you take that step? Well, after I worked with Elton, uh, this was in, he broke up the band famously. He, we were at uh, Wembley. Yeah, we were, at, <laughs> um, we were at Wembley Arena and he announced uh, to everybody, including us, the audience, that this was it. He was quitting performing. And so, whoa, that was kind of a shocker. But when, when I came back to Los Angeles, which is where I live and where I was living, I was something of, I won't say celebrity, but I, I became much better known very quickly as a musician because back in those days everybody knew everybody in the band mm. it wasn't like it is now quite as much but it was the elton john band and they knew that nigel olson and davy johnston and ray cooper and then james newton howard was in this band so i was asked to do a lot of sessions and i became quite a successful session musician so and that led to doing a lot of orchestrations for records like with Earth, Wind, and Fire, and Barbara Streisand, Olivia Newton-John, Toto, blah, blah, blah. And one of these sessions, I think it was the concertmaster, said, you know, James, why aren't you writing for TV or films? And I, I said, well, I have no idea how to write for films. I mean, what do you do? How do you synchronize the music? How do you write all... I, forget it. So I, I turned it down, and I was offered a movie. I turned it down, and people kept sort of pestering me about it, and I said, yeah, okay, I'll do it. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. So I went in and, and had no idea what I was doing. There was, the technology was primitive. Now it's the technology aspect of it is much makes it that part of it synchronizing the picture. You have to synchronize, as you will probably note, it, a twenty eighth of a second um, is a piece of cake, you know, because you have machines that do that for you to some extent. But it was immediately clear that that was what I was meant to do, you know, and I, all of the rest of it kind of fell apart and went sideways and. They just kept offering movies, and now I'm, a, I don't know, 140, 150 movies later, and it's been the greatest gift I could ever imagine. What makes you say yes to working on projects now? Director, script, musical opportunity, something new. You know, I, I've been very lucky in the sense that I, I've been 
worked on a lot of sort of rom rom coms, you know, Pretty Woman and uh, My Best Friend's Wedding. actually end up doing i think nine julia roberts uh, movies this oddly. is really funny i wanted to ask if there was some kind of unknown contract between you and julia roberts uh, that you have to score pretty much every one of her films. that would be sweet but i i don't think and, and i love julia but i don't think she had much to do with it but um and that you know i've done a lot of every kind of movie and absolutely I, and i'm so lucky for that and i've i've kind kind of been conscious about those choices i you know, you do a, an action movie like when I did The Fugitive in 19, way before you were born, I'm sure. But all of a sudden, you know, you're the action guy in Hollywood. Yeah. And then if you do a pretty woman, you're the rom-com guy. So I, I was never on one path for um, for too long. I yeah. kind of like to keep it varied. With something like Pretty Woman, where there was this, you know, this brilliant, beautiful score that you created. And then you have those, you know, you have a, a band like Roxette who are there to facilitate quite a lot of needle drops alongside that. And, and how they kind of complement each other as well. And there's a synergy between the two how does how did that work in terms of knowing how that connection should work you know on screen well you know first the the movie was called originally 3000 which was the amount of money richard gear was going to pay julia roberts to spend a week with him it's a terrible name it's terrible now but <laughs> i mean sorry at the time i thought well, that's kind of a cool name because i was a slightly edgy young younger person and and then they said, Gary Marshall said to me, you know, we're changing the name. We're going to put this song, Pretty Woman, a Roy Orbison song, which mm -hmm. I love, in the middle of the shopping montage. We're going to call the movie Pretty Woman. And I thought, that's the worst idea I've ever <laughs> heard in my life. I was embarrassed by it because it sounded so tokenistic, 
crass commercial, and of course, ended up being the perfect title for it. Pretty woman walking down the street. Pretty woman, the kind I like to meet. Pretty woman. people put songs in movies, I have no problem with it. You know, I, I try and give them a nice segue into it so yeah. it doesn't feel like it's just coitus interruptus, you know, mm -hmm. like it's just, you're in the middle of some wonderful moment and then the needle drop comes in and takes you out of the movie. It's better when people use some discretion when they're doing that because, as we all know, when it's just a mashup of one song after another, it can be really cheesy. So, yeah, it's never been a problem for me yeah. because I also have a large background as a record person, a producer and, and studio musician. So I, I relate to all those things. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, Pretty Woman is one of those films that you just never tire of. I mean, I still, anytime I'm in Claridge's and I get in that lift, it reminds me of the lift and that's color me happy. There's a sofa here for two. You know, it's kind of, it's lived with me since, you know, since I was. I was a Beverly Wilshire, though. Mm. It wasn't Claridge. No, I, but it's but our, I it's our equivalent of what is. Indeed. It's the Have most, you been to the Beverly Wilshire? No, not yet. I mean, I've done the Rodeo Drive thing and, you know, every, everyone who goes there, it's always the Pretty Woman thing that they do. You know, it's kind of, it's amazing. mentioned when you were doing you know when you started doing you know session work before you kind of took that full step into to composing for film and tv you mentioned Barbara Streisand and then you obviously went on to work with her and is that where that relationship started in terms of of her seeing what you were capable of no I, I don't think so I mean I don't think she really noticed me when I did I did a string arrangement for her in 1983 I think and it was on a, a song called a man I loved
And I did something, I guess, slightly unusual. When the song, it was about a memory and it was very kind of haunting. And I wrote this ending that was went past the rec- end of the record. And I thought, well, maybe they'll go there. I remember showing up with John Peters, her husband at the time, I think, or boyfriend. And she heard, I remember seeing her in the control room and I walked in and she said, oh, it's very interesting what you did there. And I said, oh, thanks. And, uh, you know, then the last, next thing I heard was, I guess it was seven years later, I was, I was having dinner at uh, these very famous songwriters in Los Angeles, Alan and Marilyn Bergman, who have won like, you know, seven or eight Oscars. The Way We Were, Windmills of My Mind. I mean, you know, classic film song. And she was there. We were at a dinner. and. um she, we started talking. She said, oh, yeah, you're the one that did it done. I said, yeah. And she said, what else are you doing? And can I show you the movie? And John Barry was actually on the movie already, another amazing composer. And I think they had had a disagreement about a theme or something. And John, story has it, I wasn't there, um, said, I, this is the theme I wrote. And if you don't like it, too bad. Yeah. And so she didn't like it. And I got the job. Wow. Yeah. Love it. I just watched um, Bradley Cooper play a version of John Peters in Paul Thomas Anderson's new film, Liquor's oh, Pizza. right. He's having so much fun in that role. P.T. Anderson's <gasps> phenomenal. Oh, my. It's absolutely brilliant. What was the first score you did here? Do you remember? I think that, well, I did a score that I wasn't here for because I couldn't. I was working on another score and somebody else came over here and conducted it. It was called Restoration with... Um, don't ask me now who it was. David Tulis and um, who's the guy who plays um, Iron Man? Oh, Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. He's a famous, but you know, now that I'm 70, I forget names like crazy. <laughs> but the first one I was here for was a, a M. Night Shyamalan movie called Unbreakable. We did that here. Thank you. 
or um, we did that in London. Actually, that was at the other place. <laughs> but the, what was the first? I can't recall. Actually, I'm not. It, I think maybe it was Dinosaur. Or, I did a whole bunch of movies here. Listen, the fact that it's Abbey Road, you know, it doesn't hurt. But the fact is, Studio One is my favorite studio in the world. So that's why I come here. Because the, I love the staff. I, love, I, feel, I feel like I belong here. And when I hear the sound of that room coming back at me, it's just, it's just everything that I was fantasizing about. So, <laughs> Dreaming yeah. about. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, because that can be a big problem. Because, you know, we make all these very elaborate demos, you know, of what the music's going to sound like, kind of like an architectural model, but it's like a musical model. So the director knows what to expect on the scoring stage when you actually get 90 musicians playing it. And if, if the sound isn't good, it's really a bad moment. You know, if mm -hmm. it doesn't sound good, then, you know, but I also work with one of the greatest engineers in the world, have worked with him for 35 years at this point. There are a lot of great engineers in the world. Sean Murphy has been my closest um, collaborator in that regard it's really brilliant when you look back at the the films that you've you've worked on and you just talked about it there about the idea that when you when you get success with one type of film you almost get a succession of the same, the same type of films but you've done this you know you've kind of traversed this wonderful world of covering everything you know you kind of from pretty woman to Ties, then fugitive you know in terms of and then I mean, I've, I made a list of just some of my favorites. Collateral is one of my, I love that film so much. That's a great film. But the, and, but the score is like, this whole conversation for me started when I did an interview many years ago with J.J. Abrams. And he talked about going to Skywalker Ranch and being shown the opening scenes of Star Wars without the music and just kind of going, shit. Yeah, that's what you say. <laughs> yeah. Like, who the hell directed this? It's, right. But, you know, it's kind of, you're on a journey straight away with that opening fanfare and mm. it's kind of like that for him that's the best way to describe how powerful music can be mm. with a moving image but um collateral was such a great film well i was you know uh, michael mann is one of the great filmmakers really in my opinion of the late you know last 30 years or whatever and so having an opportunity to work with him was challenging because he's not easy by any stretch and well mo no director is easy in terms of you have to understand as a film composer, what you're hired to do is not write, you're hired to rewrite. And that's what you end up doing. Currently on this movie, Fantastic Beasts, that we're doing right now, I mean, there are many pieces of music that are 20, 30 versions of it. You know, it's, 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 an, uh, people, it's hard, to, hard to 
explain and hard to understand really how much work goes into it. Mm -hmm. Just in terms of the physical, sitting at a, at a keyboard and a computer for 10, 12 hours a day for eight months. And that's the way it's been. But Collateral, Collateral was just a, an amazing movie. I mean, I just, you know, when, you, when I was intimidated by the first time I saw it, and when you're intimidated by a movie as a composer, that's a terrifying thing, but it's a good thing because it means that it's going to require you to go beyond your normal limits. point of where you come into a project you know everyone that I've spoken to there seems to be different entry points almost it's kind of I get sent the script and so I go away and write or I'm there and watch watch some of the shooting happening or I, I'm there in a first edit what's your choice I guess of where you love to come into a project or is each one different well in a perfect world I come in <clears throat> incredibly early even before shooting mm. um, I may be still finishing another project but if I've once I've read the script, had a conversation with a director, and kind of know that we're we're moving ahead, I'll usually start writing because I I always believe that my primary goal is a storyteller, absolutely. But I want to tell the story with some with some meaningful music. I just don't want to hold a low note and have a drum machine going. And so I I I, I like to try and write some themes maybe early, or just I'll write a suite or just music I make up. And when I actually get the picture in a rough form, obviously, I'll put up some of my demo of what I've written before I saw the picture. And lo and behold, a whole lot of it works. You know, it's just it's just about having a I think the the lucky thing is I, I perhaps have some and every film composer who's successful, I think, has some kind of knee jerk response to to a moving image that comes out as music or something, you know, and it's just, you know, sometimes it comes quickly and most of the time it doesn't. With collateral, then, if you say you you kind of saw you saw it and it kind of terrified you, did you react to performance then in that? Because Tom and Jamie, in particular, there. I mean, I think it's some of their best performances. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, and and Michael uh, was such an incredible shooter. And I saw he, one of the first scenes I saw was when Will Smith's ex, I can't remember, Jade, Jada Pinkett, Jada Pinkett yeah. was trapped in that office building. You know, and the thing went on for like eight minutes. And I'm thinking, okay, this is an eight minute piece of music that I have to write and may not sound like much but believe me when you have a <laughs> when you're sitting there and you have to write 8 minutes of music and uh you, you'd be surprised how how long 30 seconds can be if mm -hmm. you're not getting it right so absolutely performances were unbelievable i i've always thought tom cruise is is a wonderful actor everybody was fantastic in that um yeah great wonderful
mentioned um, Fantastic Beasts there, and it's been a couple of instances where you've done Hunger Games being mm. another one where there's a collection of films around a, a, a narrative. Mm. And it, I was just interested about how how that works for you in terms of there's a there's a narrative for the, the music over, over the course of films. Same with Fantastic Beasts, there are themes that you know come back in, but they're obviously at a different stage because the nar- narrative's at a different stage. Is that quite a nice thing to work on, or is it? It is. I, I don't think you can stand rest on your laurels and just sit back there and recycle music. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. I think hopefully initially one estab- as a as a composer you establish what you know. I, I just you can only refer to as a tone. What is the qual- unique quality of that music that makes it sound like music from Fantastic Beasts or mm. sounds like music from other than just the melodies? You know, there's a whole vocabulary, there's a whole palette, there's a whole. It has to share DNA, as they say, for the next one comes along, and you want to keep that that DNA alive. But then you have to progress from that, so you're kind of using some of the thematic material, some of the tunes, the themes. In the case of Fantastic Beasts, you're using, uh, uh, there's a theme for Newt Scamander, and there's an overall theme for the Fantastic Beasts film world. Those have been brought along to this, were brought along to the second, but the second was much, much darker.
third one is just so great, I have to say. It's just a wonderful film. And um, uh, Johnny Depp is no longer playing Grindelwald, but this wonderful actor named Mads Mikkelsen is playing Grindelwald, and he brings a whole different kind of mm. weight to the, to the thing. Yeah. Um, Johnny did a great job as well, obviously. But this has been the most challenging one yet because I'm trying to keep the essence of all the the Beast movies alive. But these are there's just epically huge scenes and a bunch of them in this movie, and uh, it's totally kicked my butt. To be <laughs> Is that a good thing? Uh, last night at ten thirty, doing choir, I would not say it was a good thing after a triple session. But yes, of course, it's a good thing. I mean, you know, I've been. Uh, challenge to the max and david yates the director you know is the t-rex of note givers i mean <laughs> i will get these notes from david and i tell him all the time when i see a note in my email box i go oh, no and it's pages but but it's great they're always his notes are always about one thing story mm-hmm. am i telling the same story the director's telling and if i'm not then we have a dissonance we have a problem um that i have to figure out how to tell the same story so yeah I'm going to throw a few more your way, if that's okay. Sure. Nightcrawler. Mm. I thought it was a great film. Great film. I mean, again, performances in that, you know, both Jake and Rez. I mean, Rez, yeah, I mean, Dan wow. Gilroy yeah. knocked it out of the park. And there's, there's a good example of a director telling you the right thing, because I had, I had portrayed Jake when he's doing these really perverse, terrible things as a dark kind of murderer or psychopath. And Dan said, no, no, no. I want you to portray him like he's winning. Pretend he's your son. You're a proud father. Okay. So when he, <laughs> find, when he finds his body and starts moving it around so we can get a picture, there was a celebratory quality about the music, which really threw people off guard. Uh-huh. But I think it, it made the whole experience that much more interesting and very clear about what the movie was about at any given moment. <laughs> I love Nanny McPhee. I mean, I love Emma. I think she I oh, could just like kidding? literally watch her make scrambled eggs. Do you know what I mean? Whatever. Yeah. But but well, she's, she's one of but the just, of all time. I mean, yeah, she is, isn't she? I just don't think she gets oh, recognition. Yeah. She deserves oh, she's kinda of like our Meryl Streep worthy, I think, worthy in Absolutely. terms of she can do everything. Oh no question. I was it was a great honor to work with her. There's no question about it. Difficult. Yeah. yeah hard for a composer. 
just because it's it's almost like a live animated film. Yeah. You know, there's just and in animation or anything kind of like animation, you're writing a lot more notes because you're you know if the if the if the kids are sneaking a pig into the house, you're sort of the pigs walking like ding ding ding, and the music has to go boom 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 boom, and then it stops. <laughs> the pig looks. You have to do the look look sound, and then he keeps going, and then there's a chase. So labor intensive, but um, really fun and a great honor to work with. there films for you growing up that really the music really connected with you that you think back going yeah those were some of my favorite scores i never i never had a an urge or a desire to be a film composer so but i did start noticing music um i remember when there was a uh, movie with charlton heston on yule brenner who most people i don't know if you've ever even heard of you probably mm-hmm. have uh, yeah uh the ten commandments cecil b demille's ten commandments and as a kid, and I can still remember the the music. I can still play it. Elmer Bernstein did the did the score, and that one really caught my attention. It's not like I said, "Oh, I want to do that," but I just remembered it. you mentioned Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders changed my life, I think. Did it? Yeah. Like when I saw that, I was so overwhelmed by the 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 movie making, obviously from Steven Spielberg's work, but the score, I really it just blew me out of the water. That one and John Barry out of Africa. When I heard Out of Africa, I just thought that was so successful. There was just a when a when a film score really sticks to a film and really is they become part of the same and then there's that old cliche that it becomes a third entity and that's really true and the third entity is the whole is the is the great overall movie experience film experience you know that you get to sense 
And then there have been other contemporary, I mean, more recent movies that have just kind of made me want to quit. I remember when I first heard Tom Newman scored a Shawshank Redemption, I thought, whoa, that is something incredible. I just did an interview with Stephen Price. Stephen's great. Ste- Stephen's great. Yeah, he's lovely brilliant. guy. And he interviewed me here, sorry, for the um, 90 years celebration of Abbey Road. Yeah. And uh, I told him, and I wanted to tell him publicly that when I heard, he was my music editor on Batman Begins. Hans, was he? Yeah, Hans and I uh, were, did Batman Begins together, and he was our music editor. I think about two years, three years later, he wins an Academy Award for Gravity. And Gravity was one of those scores. When I heard it, I said, that is the future, and I'm going to quit right now. It, <laughs> it just blew me away. I told him that, and, uh, and he's such a lovely guy on top of it. So, uh, <laughs> thankfully, you have a bunch of others too. Thankfully, you didn't. Something spurred you on to continue, <laughs> yeah. which is good news. Yeah. What was that? What was that kind of that world of Batman like for you? Because it's kind of that character and that world's been reimagined, you know, so many times. I love going back and watching the old cartoons that were out before I was even born. But there's mm. just something brilliant about them i watched them with my boys you know Mm. and then these kind of these these different incarnations of this character and these films sort of thing Mm. going into that working with hans on on those Mm. films with them with christopher what was the kind of what was the dialogue around it well you know hans and i were good friends already Mm. and we we kind of had both both reached a point where um we were just want we wanted to do something different and i think at one point we were hanging out and and i said wouldn't it be it'd be fun if i started a cue piece of music and you finished it or you started a piece and i finish it and um there was a movie that came along called secret window secret garden johnny depp that was directed by a guy named david kep great guy good friend of mine and I'm, i talked to hans i said do you want to do this with me and he said yeah sure and then uh, I think my life went into a. I went through a divorce and blah blah blah, and I kind of pulled out of some things. But about two years later, Hans got a call from Chris Nolan, who I didn't know. Well, I did know him, of course, because I'd seen what was the first one you did was one? Um, um, Memento. Memento, mm. and then uh, the Sleepless one. Mm. Uh, uh, yeah, um, Inception. Uh, no, no, um, Insomnia. Insomnia, yeah. Which is also amazing. Yeah. So he said, "Do you want to do a Batman movie with me?" Uh, and I guess he called Chris and said, yeah, I'll do the movie if I can do it with my mate, you know, James Newton Howard. And Chris said, sure. So um, in the beginning, we didn't see, he wouldn't let us see the movie. Hans and I were both working here and, and we just kind of write music and send it over there. But when we got there, we went over and wrote the score at Air Studios. And we, he was in one studio, I was in the other. And we just truly were, were kind of putting four hands on a keyboard, you know, kind of hacking it out together. 
Dark Knight was a little different. I, I He took the Joker brilliantly. Wow, he just wrote such an amazing score. <clears throat> I took Two-Face, uh, more of the psychological stuff. And um, by the end of The Dark Knight, I had so many other film commitments. Mm-hmm. He ended up doing, I think, was it Inception at that point with Chris? And I, I bowed out of The Dark Knight, whatever the last one was, just mm-hmm. because they were they were on such a roll and other things. It was very amicable. But, you know, to be honest with you, I was... I was never a huge Batman fan, quite honestly. I, I just wasn't. I was a Superman fan. When I was a kid. <laughs> but I didn't really, by the time Batman, the series, I didn't read comic books. And by the time the series came out in, in the States, I think I was more of a sort of my young 20s or late teens. And I wasn't really watching that kind of stuff much. Mm-hmm. But so the whole thing was really fun. And Chris was great. And we'd have long, long discussions. And Chris had a funny dream once. He came in one day and Hans and I were there and he said, I had a dream last night that, because we were going back and forth about whose theme was going to be where. And Hans wrote the famous, and I had written another theme that I thought, well, I think my theme's really good too, but it was a friendly kind of competition. (laughs) But Chris said, I had a dream that there was a theme that used both of your themes. And so, oh, that's interesting. So we ended up actually doing that in a number of places. So that saved my theme from uh, <laughs> ignominy. Um, and I was allowed, you know, we were able to use both of them. And I think that stuff is kind of kind of special and memorable. Yeah. What a great story. Yeah. Um, listen, we've run out of time. You've got to get yeah. back down to the studio to, to, yeah. to finish off Beasts, which I can't wait to see. Um, and I'm also excited about Willow as well, which oh, yeah. is... Um, Willow's going to be great. I can't wait. Maybe we can have another... We can do second Anytime. episode. Um, a pleasure to talk to. And great to be able to talk to you here at Abbey Road as yeah. part of their 19th celebration. Well, stop by any time. Thank you so much, sir. Thank All you right. for your time. Thank you. Thank pleasure. You. Score to The Dark Knight, that's Harvey Two-Face by James Newton Howard and Hans Zimmer, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the legendary composer. My huge thanks to James for taking the time to talk to us. Hopefully I'll get to take him up on his offer of another chat at Abbey Road or Air Studios very, very soon. Once again, my huge thanks to all the team for making that possible. Now we'll put up a Spotify playlist for this show at edithbowman.com, which is also the place to catch up with all of our previous episodes, including my chats about music with Hans, David Yates and M. Night Shyamalan. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and keep spreading the word to all those film and music fans out there who might not know about us yet. And if you get the time, we'd love you to leave a little uh, review for us if you wouldn't mind on uh, or rate us or leave a comment. Any of those would be very much appreciated. Next up then, as we go back to uh, an episode a week, 
I'm very excited to share with you Paolo Sorrentino, who has made so many fantastic films. Um, his most recent, which is in cinemas on the 3rd of December, this Friday, and on Netflix from the 15th, is The Hand of God, a very personal film to Paolo. But I do, of course, talk to him about all his great films, including The Great Beauty. We have a big chat about The Great Beauty. But please join me for our next episode, which features none other than the wonderful Paolo Sorrentino. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Thank you.